Welcome to the Command Line Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Command Line Gideon, a self-proclaimed hacker, eccentric, and hacktivist. This is my show about the practice and profession of programming, drawing on well over a decade of professional experience and a lifetime spent hacking, the intersection of technology with society and public policy, and anything else clever, elegant, or funny that catches my mind as a diehard technology geek. We do a lot of interesting sort of internal-facing communications and sharing at my current day job. It's one of the things I actually really like about it. It's a good culture all around and pretty thoughtful, at least within my group, about supporting people's growth, giving them opportunity to learn things and expand responsibilities. That may come in the form of lunchtime talks, brown bags. Uh, the larger business unit has a series of lightning talks. We also have an annual internal conference with talks that are of the caliber that you might expect from an external tech conference that you go to for any subject that you're interested in. This year, my grand boss invited me along with a handful of other folks to participate. I wasn't really sure what he wanted me to talk about. He referred to a developer tool that I wrote recently, one of a, a set of small developer tools that I've written for this job that I take immense amount of pride in in terms of how they help my coworkers and also joy because they're just fun to put together. I enjoy that kind of low-level work. He had a really nice frame on it when he responded to my question about, like, how should I talk about this? What's the value to this internal audience? He liked this idea of, just sort of encouraging and unpacking the mindset that it takes, the experience and skill set to write these kinds of tools. Part of it is a recognition of a need, the frustration that you see with your teammates around you, uh, the gaps in, in between things that don't necessarily get filled in in a formal product plan of some sort. I thought back to uh, the bulk of my career where I've had a handful of moments to write exactly these kinds of tools. So I thought that I would sit down and share some of those with you as practice and preparation for this talk should it come about, or if I'm not selected, because I think there are just a few number of slots, uh, to get this idea fleshed out and shared with someone. Anyway, I enjoyed talking about it. As I said, these are some of my favorite kinds of software development projects to do, and hopefully you get some value, if not some enjoyment from listening to it as well. When I first started working at my present employer, I was working on a project, a successor product to replace one we already had in place. Part of the decision to get this moving quickly in terms of its design was to utilize effectively the back office services we already had. Some of that was on a rather large monolith, and other parts of that were services that supplemented and kind of bridged that to the old product. You couldn't necessarily run the monolith easily on your own workstation. There were folks who'd been with our parent company for quite a bit longer who had, who and still have machines that are of a caliber that could do that. Most of us at that time settled for running those sort of bridging services. The product in question relied on those to get its IDs and to authenticate. So you couldn't really run the new product that we were building in isolation. It made often the development and testing experience with this rather frustrating. Now we had sort of a development or test harness, an app that just hosted the single page 
a front end or browser based application that really is the bulk of the business logic with this particular product. That very quickly, I think, outgrew its original value as features were increasingly more reliant on uh, circumstances similar to how we actually deployed this product to our customers. It became difficult using this uh, miniature app to fully test all of the things that we were working on. I remember very clearly one lunch session where we gathered with one of the people who knew best how to run the minimum set of external services to get the product under development to behave much more approximately like it does for the, the customers that would be using it once we launched it. Everybody started with high energy and good intention. The directions were, as you might expect, a little complicated. We tried to write them down as we went. We tried to share notes. One by one, people started dropping off. They just couldn't get some particular step working properly, couldn't understand why it was failing, and ultimately gave up. At the end, I think there were maybe one or two, no more than three, certainly, developers who actually had everything stood up and fully running. I was one of those. Within a few weeks, things had started to drift from that session, and in the absence of good tooling and documentation, it just became increasingly frustrating to try to run the product, quote-unquote, the right way. About a year in, having worked on this system, and I'd say the latter part of that year increasingly on features that really needed that full stack to run, uh, I sat down over a winter break. I wrote a tool based on my understanding of how the authentication and ID injection worked with the live services, a tool that would effectively mock them out, would provide something that was close enough that the product would behave identical or as close to identical as make no odds as if you ran the full stack. A tool, however, that was much easier to stand up, that had an interface designed specifically for developers. It presented the inputs to them in a way that they understood in terms of their development work, and also, as a lateral benefit, supported a lot of our testers doing similar kinds of things with the products. I remember a certain set of people being fairly skeptical. They had sort of settled in on ways of working around these frustrations on their own, effectively by patching things, by commenting code out, to get it working enough to ignore authentication, for instance. I worried, though, at that time, and I still do when people do things like that, in terms of how that might introduce risk. If there's something that you can't test because some of your code's actually missing, then how do you have any confidence when it gets closer to production-level testing that things are going to work? Or worse, if they do break, that you're actually going to be able to effectively troubleshoot them. After a few months, though, one by one, people really started to adopt this tool. Not because I went out and advocated for it specifically. I mean, I did spend some time pointing out, hey, I wrote this thing, it might be useful to you. But I did definitely always couch it as, it might be useful to you. I tried to write good documentation, tried to socialize things, and just make it easy to use, easier than the alternatives. Now, uh, two and a half years after starting in on that project, uh, about a month or so after having moved on from that project to some new work at the day job, it's pretty much uh, very much integrated into the process of working on this product. It's something that I think people now largely take for granted, which isn't without its own frustrations. But it's kind of cool to think, and I've had conversations with people at work, how you can channel those frustrations as a developer, use the very tools that you use for the primary thing that you're trying to build 
for someone else's benefit, a community, a customer, whoever it might be, and actually benefit yourself and your peers that you're collaborating with to do that work. For me, I guess it it's kind of obvious. I feel like code is code, and I've been at this long enough that perhaps I'd take for granted that there isn't any problem in the space of technology when we're writing software that we can't solve by writing more software and saying we can't make easier or automate. It does beg some other questions, though, that maybe are worth exploring or unpacking a little bit in terms of what it takes to get over that hump, that that sort of artificial divide a lot of people seem to have in their minds between the code that you're actually writing versus the code you're writing to write the code that you're writing. The term axe sharpening is not quite right. The term yak shaving is not quite right. Even sort of test harnesses or mocks aren't quite right in terms of they don't speak speak to exactly what I mean here. I think maybe the, the closer comparison is sort of, if you think about carpenters, that they often have this practice building jigs. And these are just things that they use, the, the tools to build whatever woodworking project that they're working on to build tools to augment sort of the basic primitive tools that they have to do a repeatable cut, to do something reliably time after time to save themselves effort and reduce the risk of making an error. I think that's a valuable metaphor to contemplate. And I think that captures in part what these experiences are that I've had over the years building these kinds of tools. My experience at my current employer are by no means unique. They're not the first time that I've done something like this. I remember I was on a a short-term contract between jobs several years ago, much closer to the beginning of my career. This was an environment where the project was to port code for a claims adjudication. This was in the health insurance industry. This was before all of the recent uh, political... uh, stress and uh, questions around the Affordable Care Act, etc. This was uh, uh, well before the Affordable Care Act. The most we had to deal with was uh, HIPAA, really, in terms of uh, customer confidentiality. All that being said, the system in question, they had attempted to rebuild this in the 90s, uh, brought a bunch of the kinds of folks that you might imagine from the first bubble, perhaps more enthusiasm than experience, Uh, That project failed miserably, so I came in under contract as part of a team to try to just carve off the user-facing, the thinnest layer of this uh, true mainframe application. It was written in COBOL, had a very sophisticated decision engine, despite the fact that it was written in COBOL. And all they really wanted to do at this point, after failing to port all of that core business logic over to something more modern, was just to put a web interface on it. This was incredibly challenging, not in the least because for developers to do what they had to do day in, day out, they had to connect to some sort of COBOL environment. That was non-trivial to do on a Windows or Linux desktop. So they shared an environment on an HP UX machine. It actually originally was an HP mainframe. They had just ported over to HP's Unix in order to run the back end of this. They effectively had a development sandbox, a single instance of the COBOL working environment that each developer in turn, and only one at a time, could connect to to test how their UI code was interoperating with that backend code. As you might imagine, this formed a different but 
equally frustrating situation as to the one that I described at the start. You, there was a lot of sort of social cueing. There wasn't any way to really sort of lock the environment uh, preemptively so that someone would encounter a graceful failure if they tried to use it when someone else was using it. Two people tried to use it at the same time. Both of their uses would break in ways that would kind of set back their development work. It was the sort of thing that ultimately ended up really gating our ability to collaborate. I ended up asking a lot of questions of the folks who knew the COBOL environment a lot better to try to understand what may be possible here to make this a little bit easier. To back up a little bit, maybe give you a little more, bit more context of that job. When I got there, they didn't even have proper source control, mostly because they had a fairly regimented IT system and the request to get resources stood up was often viewed as more trouble than it was worth. I, of course, found this unacceptable and in a guerrilla way stood up a source control server on my own machine on that job, granting people access to slowly replace effectively just emailing diffs back and forth. This earned me some trust and I think got them to thinking that there might be ways to solve these sorts of frustrations more effectively than what they were used to. All that to say that they were very patient with me when I was asking these sorts of questions. They helped me get into this shared sandbox environment and ultimately I wrote a thin remoting server that could sit in front of it and do the low-level bridging work over to the web code that we were writing turned out that that actually worked pretty well and formed a, a much better basis to actually share with a graceful blocking that critical resource that we needed on the back end to do the development work and ultimately the testing work. There was even, unfortunately, a manager, pointy-haired boss, if you will, who saw that as uh, a potential value add to sell to customers. I didn't write it for customers. I was very clear at the outset this this was an eternal tool. What they did with it who knows? I was only there for about six months. A little bit of pride in that observation, too, that someone would think that this was clever and useful enough that it might have uh, some legs on it to turn into some sort of product feature. I can only hope they did their due diligence if they decided to actually push forward with the notion of, of productizing it to make sure that it was stable and uh, usable for that purpose. Really, again, for me, the, the thing that's important about this story is extending creative problem solving beyond the problem you're looking directly at. Are there problems on the way to the problem that you might be able to address? And what sort of barriers, in, in, in this instance, not even necessarily technical, do you need to overcome? There may be organizational barriers. There may be perceptual barriers. If people just see things as just so, this is just the way it is. I don't know how to do it any other way, or this works. Why would I want to try to do it some other way? Even if it's painful, I don't have a point of comparison. I think perhaps then some perspective being a little bit more versed in different ways of doing things might be helpful in asking the right kinds of thoughtful questions to get people to think a bit more uh, laterally. Ultimately, this reinforces this notion of why can't everyone do this? This is a question that was put to me. What is it about these sorts of solutions, these developer hacks that some people come up with and some people don't? They, they almost don't even seem open to considering the possibility that they could apply their programming skills in such a novel way. I think it's just mindset, personally. Everything that we work with is ultimately made of the same stuff. It's made of source code. Sure, there's perhaps a little bit more you have to dig into to understand how to support developers. Your error messaging and interfaces are going to be different, but they still need to be humane. 
in terms of expressing what is expected, what's needed to drive a development tool forward, and where things have gone wrong and how to correct for that. I, I think there are strong parallels there. I think maybe on the flip side, a lot of people when you say development tools perhaps think of IDEs and compilers, linkers, things of that nature that are truly low level and often just straight up challenging intellectually to put together, let alone to understand. I guess for me, what helps get me over that hump to solve these kinds of problems over and over again is merely that, that realization that uh, a developer tool is just a solution that helps a developer. It's just that simple. It doesn't have to be anything super advanced or sophisticated. Sure, the kinds of problems that we run into as programmers might be a bit more complex and in the weeds, but ultimately they can be decomposed. And if you think about that last example, you think about the, the core intelligence that was left in all of this venerable COBOL code, that was non-trivially complex. People wrote that. They Whatever you think of the implementation language, and it was very much a product of the time and the age of the system in question, that took a lot of intellect and skill and understanding to pull off. That was a non-trivial system in order to support good health outcomes over time, to support reporting, uh, management of a very complicated profession. Step back from that a moment and recognize that if you can do that, if a team can do that, it really isn't that different to look at developer problems and see them as being of a similar scope and caliber and hence, if you're equipped to do something that ridiculously sophisticated on behalf of a non-technical user or a user with a different technical interest, there's nothing that says that you don't have the capability to do the same thing for yourself and your direct teammates. After about two and a half years at my current job, I had the opportunity to kind of have a deep think about what I want to do. I'm one of the top contributors to the product I described at the outset, the one that uh, needed this little bit of love on the developer side to make the overall experience better. And the organization about every six months, I'll say, in the true spirit of agility, does kind of reconsider how they do work and often arrives at ways to reorganize on the fly that's continuous with the way that they do things, but to give people a chance to change things up, to tackle new problems and challenges. I've really enjoyed building tools like the one I described, that orchestration tool. I actually did a, a second version of that, oh, maybe about nine months ago to kind of bring it up to date. We had rewritten a lot of the backend services into microservices, and the frustrations had kind of shifted from uh, single points of pain and frustration over to uh, what you might imagine when you have a lot of very small bits of software running that have to talk to each other and share information just so. So bringing that up to date uh, was an interesting challenge in and of itself. Fun in that all the things that needed to talk to had thoughtful, well-designed REST APIs, but a lot more things to talk to previously. Also a fairly sophisticated authentication system based on OpenID Connect, a little bit of proprietary magic, mostly shortcuts because these are all trusted services that run um, not exactly behind our firewall, but do have a, a private network to talk to each other so we can kind of cut down on some of the low-level chit-chat that you might need to do in a public-facing protocol in order to make it more secure when everything's apparent versus when a lot of it can transit on a network nobody else can uh, ideally, uh, if you do things right, can observe. Regardless, it didn't stop there. I That, that 
that authentication system I contributed to a lot. I've actually worked on single sign-on solutions a couple of times previously in my career as well and have found them enjoyable for similar reasons. They seem to bridge between sort of user-facing and developer-facing work in terms of uh, users don't have that frustration of having to sign in across all those little collaborating services, but developers are very much involved in making sure that their services participate well in these schemes. So really seems to hit that nice sort of sweet spot. Unfortunately, we stood up our single sign-on solution in the midst of uh, a pretty uh, strong opportunity and a lot of calendar pressure, an opportunity that we met very well uh, that has allowed the primary product that I started working on and was still uh, a contributor to at that time uh, to succeed and flourish in all the right ways. In the months following getting that out to market, uh, I had many conversations with developers that went along the lines of, well, the single sign-on solution, the, the server-to-server aspect of that is a little more complicated than I'd like. I usually just end up commenting it out or finding some way to work around it. My reaction to that initially is uh, a little bit of saltiness, shall we say, in terms of, you know, we adopted good standards here, our strong RSA encryption, asymmetric key pairs, uh, JSON web tokens, very thoughtful ways of deploying these and doing them right to ensure that there's a high level of security. Sure, one could argue that this is just developers doing internal work or testers doing internal work. None of this should ever get out to a customer. For me, I just worry that someone with the best intentions could still mistakenly commit something that they shouldn't. On thinking about this more, I really got to thinking about, again, that humaneness of design when putting developer tools together and a single sign-on solution like this, especially one that encompasses microservices talking to each other, is absolutely that. It has to speak to the developer experience as well as the strong security that you want when you launch that into production. You have to think about documentation and scripts and tools that just make it easier for people to work with in a way that they don't end up working around and invite that risk of perhaps inadvertently eroding uh, the outcomes that you're striving for here, strong security. I ended up writing two specific tools to address these sorts of unmet needs. The first was one that I call uh, um, an authorization client, if you will, both of them as it happens, just due to timing and my interest in the language I wrote in Rust. That first one just drove that server-to-server -server exchange as if it was a server. Uh, given a few development credentials, it then could get key material and it could generate a valid token in order to interact with other microservices. So, for instance, you might imagine if you're familiar developing Rust uh, APIs for services, that curl is a great tool for that. It allows you to even take in some sophisticated payloads in JSON or XML or form encoded, whatever you like. It also complies with the Unix philosophy really well, so you can use all kinds of formatters and, and mungers to feed into it to formulate those payloads. You can pipe those back out into similar tools for pretty printing, so you actually can get a pretty thoughtful sort of a developer workflow around these to see what data is available, to do some discovery, to do some low-level ad hoc testing, just to make sure as you're coding that your assumptions are right in terms of how these conversations unfold with these services. It can be very frustrating, understandably, if you keep getting blocked because you don't have an authorization header with a sophisticated bearer token embedded in it. That's ultimately what this client does, is in all the right ways, leveraging the knowledge that I have, having implemented 
uh, about one and three quarters of our three clients for this system to act as yet another client, one specifically developers who might be using this to copy paste auth tokens into a tool like Swagger or into Curl or, or what have you. The other tool I wrote was a developer single sign-on server. Our production single sign-on server actually talks back to that monolith I mentioned at the outset. We have test and development versions of that monolith that we share, but we share that across multiple locations and with other groups within our business unit. It's a managed resource that unfortunately sometimes from time to time for maintenance or because of problems does go down and become unavailable. We had a string while I was working on that auth client, that low level auth client for doing uh, auth tokens for curl calls or curl to drive rest calls. We had a, a spate a week or two or maybe three where there were outages and it got very frustrating. People on their web service interacting with the user facing single sign on couldn't get into their developer boxes because the ultimate form that they were authing against on the monolith was just not available. They'd get a, some sort of four or 500 level error. The development single sign-on server then provided something that they could stand up in the interim that behaved exactly like the shared resource did, but gave them more discretion in terms of they could just put arbitrary identifiers in if they knew what they were doing, and they could get a valid session from there. Even better, it solved a, a problem that we had with our support tooling. Our, our customer support representatives have a lot of advanced tools that they use to help our customers when they call in with a problem. You either have to be registered with the care systems in test or in production as an actual care user to use those, or have to kind of take it on faith or collaborate with a tester or care agent to test out any features that you're adding to those tools. This developer SSO server actually let you just directly put in the additional claims into the token that you were generating to represent in development circumstance that you were a care agent made it much, much easier to actually test your care tools. Ideally, I like to hope, I like to think that this would encourage people to be more thoughtful and more inclusive in the sort of care tools that they wrote because they had no barrier for doing so, or they had less barrier anyway for doing so. Those newer tools are in the early stages of adoption, like that first one I talked at at the start of the feature. In terms of not everybody's using them yet, not everybody maybe appreciates the value that they provide or has been frustrated to the point where they've reached for an auth client or developer SSO server. Regardless, this is something now that I've done more at this job than any other previously, and I've actually switched over to a squad at work that focuses much more on developer operations, infrastructure, and production support with the blessing to continue to work as a first-class responsibility on the developer experience, finding gaps like the ones that I've talked about, and writing tools to fill in those gaps. I found both on the developer operations side and the development tooling side, a key part of this is bearing in mind that the interest and experience that each developer brings, even though they're developers, varies quite a bit. I try to model the less experienced members of the team in a very positive way in terms of keeping the number of steps small and easy to reason about and ensuring that there's good documentation, not just a straight up, here's how you do it. I've found myself very often in the readmes associated with these tools actually writing a troubleshooting section and recruiting people to collaborate with me on those troubleshooting sections as we find things we find 
build dependency issues across the three operating systems that we develop on that might need a little bit of work to track down, little odd behaviors, uh, issues with VPN access because it doesn't uh, route all traffic equally. That's been a really great experience, I think, to help people feel more engaged and enabled to utilize these tools and in some small way own them much more than if I just wrote or delivered them. Definitely, I think that it drives better adoption when you think about not just frustration and providing something that's good enough to address the initial frustration, but think beyond frustration to how does this become delightful? I think if you actually look at the organizations and communities that address developer tooling in the traditional sense, IDEs, compilers, and the like, that really think about experience, humanity, and ergonomics, the ones who just embrace that and have a strong strand of DNA that says they're going to do that well in a very human-centered way, that make programming delightful, do it best and set a bar that we all can think about day to day when we have these frustrations and we're writing a small script to solve one of our own needs that might be useful to other people on our team or doing something anywhere between there and the space of these much more in-depth sophisticated tools that there are a lot of cool opportunities and principles to guide us along the way and experiences that we can realize with a great deal of joy if we do this right. If you have your own experiences utilizing a tool that someone else wrote for you that's specific to your own development experience, you've wrote a tool for yourself, or you've been lucky enough to share tools that you've wrote with other people and experience some of the joy and frustration that I've spoke to through the several examples that I've shared, please feel free to send those along. I'm happy to share those with everybody else. That's going to do it for this episode. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the program, please do tell a friend. If you have a question, suggestion, or correction, you can send those to feedback at thecommandline.net, or you're welcome to record a bit of audio with your smart device and send it to the same place. Until next time, don't forget to hack your world. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. 